Chapter One of No Great Magic by Fritz Leiber. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phil Chenevere. No Great Magic by Fritz Leiber. Chapter One. To bring the dead to life is no great magic. Few are wholly dead. Blow on a dead man's embers, and a live flame will start. Graves. I dipped through the filmy curtain into the boy's half of the dressing room, and there was Sid sitting at the star's dressing table in his threadbare yellowed undershirt, the lucky one, not making up yet, but staring sternly at himself in the bulb-framed mirror, and experimentally working his features a little, as actors will, and kneading the stubble on his fat chin. I said to him quietly, Siddy, what are we putting on tonight? Maxwell Anderson's Elizabeth the Queen, or Shakespeare's Macbeth? It says Macbeth on the callboard, but Miss Nefer's getting ready for Elizabeth. She just had me go and fetch the red wig. He tried out a few eyebrow rears, right, left, both together, then turned to me, sucking in his big gut a little, as he always does when a gal heaves into hailing distance, and said, Your pardon, sweetling, what saith thou? Sid always uses that kook antique patter backstage, until I sometimes wonder whether I'm in Central Park, New York City, nineteen hundred and three-quarters, or somewhere in Southwark, Merry England, fifteen hundred and same. The truth is that, although he loves every last fat part in Shakespeare, and will play the skinniest one with loyal and inspired affection, he thinks Willie S. pinned Falstaff with nobody else in mind but Sidney J. Lessingham. And no accent on the ham, please. I closed my eyes and counted to eight, then repeated my question. He replied, Why the board's tragical history of the bloody Scots, certes? He waved his hand toward the portrait of Shakespeare that always sits beside his mirror on top of his reserve makeup box. At first that particular picture of the bard looked too Nancy to me, sort of a peeping Tom schoolteacher, but I've grown used to it over the months, and even palsy feeling. He didn't ask me why I hadn't asked Miss Never my question. Everybody in the company knows she spends the hour before curtain time getting into character, never parting her lips except for that purpose or to bite your head off if you try to make the most necessary conversation. "'Aye, tis Macbeth to-night,' Sid confirmed, returning to his frowning practice. Left eyebrow up, right down, reverse, repeat, rest. And I must play the ill-starred Thane of Glamis. I said, "'That's fine, Siddy, but where does it leave us with Miss Neffer?' She's already thinned her eyebrows and beaked out the top of her nose for Queen Liz, though that's as far as she's got. A beautiful job, the nose. Anybody else would think it was plastic surgery instead of putty. But it's going to look kind of funny on the Thanis of Glamis. Sid hesitated a half-second longer than he usually would. I thought, his timing's off tonight. And then he harumped and said, why, Iris Nefer, decked out as good Queen Bess, will speak a prologue to the play, a prologue which I have myself but last week writ. He owled his eyes. Tis an experiment in the new theatre. 
I said, City, prologues are nothing new to Shakespeare. He had them on half his other plays. Besides, it doesn't make sense to use Queen Elizabeth. She was dead by the time he whipped up Macbeth, which is all about witchcraft and directed at King James. He growled a little at me and demanded, Prithee, how comes it your piwit brain bears such a ballast of fusty book knowledge, chit? I said softly, City, you don't camp in a Shakespearean dressing room for a year, tete-a-teting with some of the wisest actors ever, without learning a little. Sure, I'm a middle case, a poor little A and A existing on your sweet charity, and don't think I don't appreciate it, but— A and A, thou sayest? he frowned. Methinks the gladsome new forswearers of sack and ale call themselves A.A. Agoraphobe and amnesiac, I told him. But look, Siddy, I was going to sayeth that I do know the plays. Having Queen Elizabeth speak a prologue to Macbeth is as much an anachronism as if you put her on the gantry of the British moonship, busting a bottle of champagne over its schnozzle. Ha! he cried, as if he caught me out. And saying there's a new Elizabeth, wouldn't that be the bravest advertisement ever for the Empire? Perchance rechristening the pilot, co-pilot, and astrogator Drake, Hawkins, and Raleigh, and the ship, the Golden Hind, Tilly-Fally Lady? He went on, My prologue and anachronism quotha, the groundlings will never mark it. Thinkest thou wisdom came to mankind from the stenchful rocket and the sundered atomy? More, the bard himself was top-full of anachronism. He put spectacles on King Lear, had clocks toiling the hour in Caesar's Rome, buried that Roman stead of burning him, and gave Czechoslovakia a seacoast. Go to Dahl. Czechoslovakia city? Bohemia, then, what skills it? Leave me now, sweet puppet, go thy ways. I have matters of import to ponder. There's more to running a repertory company than reading the footnotes to Furness. Martin had just slouched by, calling the half-hour, and looking in his solemnity, sneakers, Levi, and dirty T-shirt, more like an underage refugee from Skid Row than Sid's newest recruit, assistant stage manager, and hardest-working juvenile though for once he'd remembered to shave. I was about to ask Sid who was going to play Lady Mac if Miss Never wasn't, or if she were going to double the roles, shouldn't I help her with the change? She's a slow dresser, and the Elizabethan costumes are pretty realistically stayed. And she would have trouble getting off that nose, I was sure. But then I saw that Siddy was already slapping on the albaline to keep the grease paint from getting into his pores. Greta, you ask too many questions, I told myself. You get everybody riled up, and you rack your own poor rickety little mind, and I hide myself off to the costumery to settle my nerves. The costumery, which occupies the back end of the dressing-room, is exactly the right place to settle the nerves and warm the fancies of any child, including an unraveled adult who's saving what's left of her sanity by pretending to be one. To begin with, there are the regular costumes for Shakespeare's plays, all jeweled and spangled and brocaded, stage armor, great Roman togas with weights in the borders to make them drape right, velvets of every color to rest your cheek against and dream, 
and the fantastic costumes for the other plays we favor, Ibsen's Peer Gint, Shaw's Back to Methuselah, and Hilliard's adaptation of Heinlein's Children of Methuselah, the Capek brothers' Insect People, O'Neill's The Fountain, Flecker's Hassan, Camino Real, Children of the Moon, The Beggar's Opera, Mary of Scotland, Berkeley Square, The Road to Rome. There are also the costumes for all the special and variety performances we give for plays. Hamlet in modern dress, Julius Caesar set in a dictatorship of the 1920s, The Taming of the Shrew in caveman furs and leopard skins, where Petruchio comes in riding a dinosaur. The Tempest, set on another planet, with a spaceship wreck to start it off carump, which means a half-dozen spacesuits, featherweight but looking ever so practical, and the weirdest sort of extraterrestrial beast outfits for Ariel and Caliban and the other monsters. Oh, I tell you, the stuff in the costumery ranges over such a sweep of space and time that you sometimes get frightened you'll be whirled up and spun off just anywhere, so that you have to clutch at something very real to you to keep it from happening, and to remind you where you really are, as I did now at the subway token on the thin gold chain around my neck, city's first gift to me that I can remember, and chanted very softly to myself, like a charm or a prayer, closing my eyes and squeezing the holes in the token. Columbus Circle, Times Square, Penn Station, Christopher Street. But you don't ever get really frightened in the costumery. Not exactly, though your goose hairs get wonderfully realistically tangled, and your tummy chilled from time to time, because you know it's all make-believe, a like-sized doll world, a children's dress-up world, it gets you thinking of far-off times and scenes as pleasant places, and not as black, hungry mouths that might gobble you up and keep you forever. It's always safe, always just in the theater, just on the stage, no matter how far it seems to plunge and roam. And the best sort of therapy for a potholed mind like mine, with as many gray ruts and curves and gaps as its cerebrum, that can't remember one single thing before this last year in the dressing-room, and that can't ever push its shaking body out of that same motherly-fatherly room, except to stand in the wings for a scene or two, and watch the play until the fear gets too great, and the urge to take just one peek at the audience gets too strong. And I remember what happened the two times I did peek, and I have to come scuttling back. The costumery's good occupational therapy for me, too, as my pricked and calloused fingertips testify. I think I must have stitched up or darned half the costumes in it this last twelve-month, though there were so many of them that I swear the drawers have accordion pleats and the racks extend into the fourth dimension, not to mention the boxes of props and the shelves of scripts and prompt copies and other books, including a couple of encyclopedias and many thick volumes of Furness's Variorum Shakespeare, which, as Sid had guessed, I'd been boning up on. Oh, I've sponged and pressed enough costumes, too, and even refitted them to newcomers like Martin, ripping up and re-sewing seams, which can be a punishing job with heavy materials. 
In a less sloppily organized company I'd be called wardrobe mistress, I guess, except that to anyone in show business that suggests a crotchety old dame with lots of authority and scissors hanging around her neck on a string. Although I got my crotchets all right, I'm not that old. Kind of childish, in fact. As for authority, everybody outranks me, even Martin. Of course, to somebody outside show business, wardrobe mistress might suggest a yummy gal who spends her time dressing up as Nell Gwynn, or Anitra, or Mrs. Pinchwife, or Cleopatra, or even Eve, we got a legal costume for it, and inspiring the boys. I tried that once or twice, but City frowns on it, and if Miss Neffer ever caught me at it I think she'd wang me. And in a normaler company it would be the wardrobe room, too, but costumery is my infantile name for it, and the actors go along with my little whims. I don't mean to suggest our company is completely crackers. To get as close to Broadway even as Central Park you got to have something. But in spite of Sid's whip-cracking there is a comforting looseness about its efficiency. People trade around the parts they play without fuss. The bill may be changed a half-hour before curtain without anybody getting hysterics. Nobody gets fired for eating garlic and breathing it in the leading lady's face. In short, we're a team. Which is funny when you come to think of it, as Sid and Miss Neffer and Bruce and Maudie are British. Miss Sneffer with a touch of Eurasian blood, I romance. Martin and Beau and me are American, at least I think I am, while the rest come from just everywhere. Besides my costumery work, I fetch things and run inside errands and help the actresses dress, and the actors too. The dressing rooms very co-educational in a halfway respectable way. And every once in a while Martin and I police up the whole place me skittering about with dust-cloth and waste-basket, he wielding the scrub-brush and mop with such silent grim efficiency that it almost makes me nervous to get through and duck back into the costumery to collect myself. Yes, the costumery's a great place to quiet your nerves or improve your mind or even dream your life away. But this time I couldn't have been there eight minutes when Miss Neffer's Elizabeth angry voice came skirling, Girl! Girl, Greta, where is my ruff with silver trim? I laid my hands on it in a flash and loped it to her, because old Queen Liz was known to slap even her maids of honor around a bit now and then. And Miss Never is a bear on getting into character, a real Paul Mooney. She was all made up now, I was happy to note, at least as far as her face went. I hate to see that spooky eight-spoke faint tattoo on her forehead. I've sometimes wondered if she got it acting in India or Egypt, maybe. Yes, she was already all made up. This time she'd been going extra heavy on the borrowing into character bit, I could tell right away, even if it was only for a hacked-out anachronistic prologue. She signed to me to help her dress without even looking at me. But as I got busy I looked at her eyes. They were so cold and sad and lonely, maybe because they were so far away from her eyebrows and temples and small tight mouth, and so shut away from each other by that ridge of nose, that I got the creeps. Then she began to murmur and sigh very softly at first, then loudly enough so I got the sense of it. Cold, so cold, she said, 
still seeing things far away, though her hands were working smoothly with mine. Even a gallop hardly fires my blood. Never was such a Januarius, though there's no snow. Snow will not come, or tears. Yet my brain burns with the thought of Mary's death warrant unsigned. There's my particular hell. To doom, perchance, all future queens, or leave a hole for the Spaniard and the Pope to creep like old worms back into the sweet apple of England. Philip's tall black crooked ships massing like sea-going fortresses south away, cragged castles set to march into the waves, Parma in the lowlands, and all the while my bright young idiot gentleman, spurting out my treasures as if it were so much water as if gold pieces were a glut of summer posies. Oh, like a canite. And I thought, cry iced, that you're going to be one tyrannosaur of a prologue, and how you'll ever shift back to being Lady Mac beats me. Greta, if this is what it takes to do just a bit part, you'd better give up your secret ambition of playing walk-on some day when your nerves heal. She was really getting to me, you see, with that characterization. It was as if I'd managed to go out and take a walk, and sat down in the park outside, and heard the President talking to himself about the chances of war with Russia, and realized he'd sat down on a bench with its back to mine, and only a bush between. You see, here we were, two females undignifiedly twisted together, at the moment getting her into that crazy crouch-deep bodice that's like a big ice-cream cone. And yet, here at the same time, was Queen Elizabeth I of England, three hundred and umpty-ump years dead, coming back to life in a Central Park dressing-room. It shook me. She looked so much the part, you see, even without the red wig yet, just powdered pale makeup going back to a quarter of an inch from her own short dark bang, combed and netted back tight. The age, too. Miss Neffer can't be a day over forty, well, forty-two at most. But now she looked and talked and felt to my hands, dressing her, well, at least a dozen years older. I guess when Miss Neffer gets into character she does it with each molecule. The age point fascinated me so much that I risked asking her a question. Probably I was figuring that she couldn't do me much damage because of the positions we happened to be in at the moment. You see, I'd started to lace her up, and to do it right, I had my knee against the tail of her spine. How old, I mean how young, might your majesty be? I asked her innocently, wonderingly like some dumb serving wench. For a wonder, she didn't somehow swing round and clout me, but only settled into character a little more deeply. Fifty-four winters, she replied dismally. Tis Januarius of our Lord's year one thousand and five hundred and eighty and seven. I sit cold in Greenwich, staring at the table where Mary's death warrant waits only my sign manual. If I send her to the block, I open the doors to future, less official regicides. But if I doom her not, Philip's armada will come inching up the channel in a season puffing smoke and shot, and my English Catholics, thinking only of Mary Regina, will rise, and in the end the Spaniard will have it all. All history would alter. That must not be, even if I'm damned for it. And yet, and yet, 
A bright blue fly came buzzing along. The dressing-room has some insect life, and slowly circled her head rather close, but she didn't even flicker her eyelids. I sit cold in Greenwich, going mad. Each afternoon I ride, praying for some mischance, some prodigy, to wash from my mind away the bloody question for some little space. It skills not what. A fire, a tree a-falling, Davidson or Enai's Leicester tumbling with his horse, an assassin's ball clipping the cold twigs by my ear, a maid crying rape, a wild boar charging with dipping tusks, news of the Spaniard at Thames's mouth, or, more happily, a band of strolling actors setting forth some new comedy to charm the fancy or some great unheard-of tragedy to tear the heart. Though that were somewhat much to hope for at this season and place, even if Southwark be close by. The lacing was done. I stood back from her, and really she looked so much like Elizabeth, painted by Gerarts, or on the great seal of Ireland or something, though the ash-colored plush dress trimmed in silver, and the little silver-edge ruff and the black-silver tinsel cloth coke lined with white plush hanging behind her looked most like a winter riding costume and her face was such a pale frozen mask of elizabeth's inward tortures that i told myself oh i got to talk to city again he's made some big mistake the lordy old lackwit miss nefford just can't be figuring on playing in macbeth tonight as a matter of fact i was nerving myself to ask her all about it direct though it was going to take some real nerve, and maybe be risking broken bones, or at least a flayed cheek, to break the ice of that characterization, when who should come by calling the fifteen-minute but Martin? He looked so downright goofy that it took my mind off Nefer in character for all of eight seconds. His levied bottom half still looked like the lower depths. Martin is village Stanislavski rather than ye old English stage traditions, but above that, well, all it really amounted to was that he was stripped to the waist and had shaved off the small high tuft of chest hair, and was wearing a black wig that hung down in front of his shoulders in two big braids heavy with silver hoops and pins. But just the same, those simple things along with his tar-paper solarium tan and habitual poker expression, made him look so like an American Indian that I thought, Hey, Zeus, he's all set to play Hiawatha, or if he just cover up that straight-line chest, a frowny Pocahontas. And I quick ran through what plays with Indian parts we do, and could only come up with the fountain. I mutely goggled my question at him, waggling my hands like guppy fins, but he brushed me off with a solemn, mysterious smile, and backed through the curtain. I thought, nobody can explain this but City, and I followed Martin. End of chapter 1